The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. Let's go ahead and look to God's Word in Revelation chapter 21, 1 through 8. Follow along with me as I read. John the Apostle is writing a, a vision that God gave him. And he says this, or wrote it down, moved along by the Holy Spirit, preserving its perfect accuracy. John said, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers, and immoral persons, and sorcerers, and idolaters, and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. What is it like in heaven? What, what is it like in heaven? Those are actually the ter- two, first two sentences and lyrics of a song that one of my children wrote when they were three years old. And the whole family learned it. And we sang it together. Because it was a short song. And it was also theologically accurate. What is it like in heaven? Three years old. But that question, you know, what is it like in heaven? Really every human soul that's ever lived on planet Earth for 6,000 years one time or another, ask that question, what is it like in heaven? It's an inescapable question that confronts humanity of every human being made in the image of God, whether they're a Christian or not, because God has put the image of God in every person he made. That's his imprint that is innate, it is inherent, it's inescapable. And also he's given every human being a conscience, and that conscience nags at every person to be confronted with ultimate realities in life that we need to deal with. And one of those is that we're going to die someday, and there is an eternal destiny. And what is that eternal destiny? What happens after death? Well, the Bible is clear. There's either heaven or hell. That's it. That's not so much dogmatic as it is truth because Jesus has revealed that to be the truth regarding what happens after you die. It's either instant heaven or instant hell or separation from God. It's the clear teaching of the Bible. But the religions of the world... As a matter of fact, every religion of the world and philosophy of life claims to have the answer to that question, what is it like after death, or even specifically, what is it like in heaven? All the main religions of the world have a view that they believe is true, 
and binding for us. I think of one of the largest religion in the world is Islam. They have a view of heaven. Supposedly in heaven, Allah lives. Not as a triune God, but by himself. And when you die as a Muslim, depending upon Allah's mood that day, you are either in paradise or you're punished, apparently. And if you're a good Muslim and considered worthy and a male when you get to Allah's presence and you've been faithful, then you will be allowed to have 70 pure virgins for you to delight in for all eternity. That's what Islam teaches about heaven. That's wrong. It's erroneous. It's contrary to Scripture, but that's what they believe. That's what they're looking forward to. Uh, Eastern religions, many of them, have a very specific view of heaven or the afterlife. And for the most part, it has to do with trying to escape the physical, escape this physical body, escape this physical world, because they view so much of what's material and physical as negative. So a lot of those religions, whether it's Hinduism or New Age philosophies, when you die and you are worthy, then you escape into a, from the physical, from your body, into the ethereal, invisible nothingness of the mindless Borg of the universe. And that's supposed to be good and exciting and motivating. To me, it's very confusing and very depressing, actually. But just those two represent the, most of the religions of the world. And then there's even in the so-called Christian world where we get book after book after book of people trying to describe what heaven is like, some good, some bad, some even misleading. Uh, even a best-selling book in evangelical Christianity today that has been for several years is some guy's supposed testimony who went to heaven for, is it 90 minutes? 90 minutes in heaven? Uh, I see that in Christian bookstores. I've even seen it in a couple churches recently, and I was, I was sad by that because it's not true. Some guy who supposedly died, went to heaven, came back, and is giving us new revelations about what heaven is like. He's trying to answer the question, what is heaven like? We don't need that book. We don't need that testimony because we have Scripture, and Scripture is clear. As a matter of fact, Paul said in Corinthians, do not go beyond what is written. That's what he said. Christian, don't go beyond what is written. Don't believe anything spiritual or new revelation that is outside the confines of the Bible, Scripture. You know, if you want to know what heaven is like, you don't go outside of Scripture. God has given us everything we need to know, what He wants us to know for now about heaven. And we're to be content and worshipful towards Him about that. Uh, the Bible refers to heaven over 500 times. Heaven is something God wants us to be knowledgeable about. Absolutely. Because that's where He is. That's where our destiny is as a believer. The book of Revelation refers to heaven by name about 50 times. So if you want a book in the Bible to tell you about what heaven is like, to answer that question, what is it like, you go to Revelation. That's another great reason to study the book of Revelation as a church because we are studying the details of our eternal destiny with God and with Christ. And it is exciting, and that's where we're at now, Revelation 21, a very exciting chapter about some of the details that are in heaven and what is it like in heaven. And then even at the end of Revelation is... God gave John the revelation or the details of the future and how the world ends and what heaven is going to be like, heaven on earth and eternal heaven. After all those prophecies and all that revelation, then John the Apostle gives this warning, not just to the church, but to every human being that would live after him. 
Inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, John authoritatively said this at the end of the book of Revelation, chapter 22, verse 18. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, of the book of Revelation that talks about heaven. If anyone adds to them, if anyone adds to the book of Revelation or the Bible, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, take it away. In other words, not believe it, deny it, distort it. If anyone takes away uh, the words of the prophecy of this book, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city, which are written in this book. Don't go beyond what is written and don't tamper with God's written revelation in Scripture. It is absolutely trustworthy what God has to say about heaven. We're going to see that today in Revelation 25, 1 through 8, and specifically verse 5. But let's go ahead and look at the, the details of the text together. It's very exciting. Uh, studying and thinking about heaven is... Very beneficial, edifying, encouraging, motivating for the Christian. Christians should be heavenly minded all the time, constantly. And I could go through all the benefits of that, practically speaking, if you're heavenly minded. As a matter of fact, when was the last time you thought about heaven this week? I did yesterday when I thought we were going there. We almost got in a car accident. Really? But when's the last time, Christian, you thought about heaven? Because Scripture is clear, you need to be thinking about heaven. You need to be heavenly minded. Because what that means is you've got an eternal perspective about things, right? That sure diminishes the problems in this life if we've got an eternal perspective, doesn't it? Absolutely. So that's a blessed thing. As a matter of, we are commanded as Christians to meditate, think upon the realities of heaven with an eternal perspective. That's Colossians. Set your mind on heaven. Keep your eyes on the author of our faith. Jesus says Hebrews. He is in heaven. He's coming from heaven. An eternal perspective. It's incredibly motivating for the Christian. It motivates us in, in service, right? We do ministry in the local churches we're commanded to do in Ephesians 4. Why are we doing that? To please the pastor, the elder, to show off as a Christian, to get your own rewards? No. First and foremost, whatever you do at the church in terms of ministry is service to God who is in heaven. To please Him, to worship Him, and it's, and someday you will be rewarded for faithful service that you did by way of ministry. Absolutely. That is an eternal perspective. It gives us eternal motivation in anything we do with respect to ministry, regardless of how big or mundane and menial the task is in the church. That's an eternal perspective. Every one of us needs to have that as a Christian, in an ongoing manner. And by the way, that kind of discipline, a daily meditation and reality of longing for heaven and thinking about heaven, the implications of the imminency of heaven for every human being, incredibly motivating for us and encouraging. And it should be because, after all, that discipline of meditating on heaven should be a reality because everything that the Christian considers dear in their life is in heaven, isn't it? Think, well, who's there? Well, God, my Father is there. I remember when I was a little kid, you don't remember everything, but one of the things I remember explicitly, especially as an elementary kid, when one of my parents was gone on vacation, I hated that. Just in, I was incredibly insecure. When's mommy coming home? That's what you should feel like here on earth. Your father, God the Father, he is in heaven. And we should long to be with our father. Our Savior Jesus is there, isn't he? The book of Peter says, even though you believe in him, you have never seen him. I've never seen Jesus. I have never physically seen Jesus, yet I believe in him. He is my savior. I know him. We're personally, intimately related, but he's not physically here, but he will be someday. I long for that. My Lord Jesus, he saved me. 
the greatest longing of our heart. My Father is there. My Savior is there. The Spirit of God is there in heaven. Yes, He's in my heart, but in a fuller sense in heaven. My inheritance is there. Inheritance. What is that? That's really cool, expensive stuff you get when somebody else dies. But in this case, your inheritance, which is in heaven, you get it when you die. Why? Because Jesus died for you so you could get it. Our inheritance is there. That's why if you, if you consider anything of worthy, lasting, satisfying inheritance in this earth, you're going to be gravely disappointed because it's going to rot and turn to rust. That's what Jesus said, and the moths are going to eat it. And you can't haul it with you in a U-Haul behind your hearse, right? So we need to, my inheritance is there. My father is there. The triune God is there. My rewards are there. We will be rewarded as Christians in heaven. That's a glorious reality. That's not crass motivation. That is a promise from a God. We will be rewarded with literal rewards from God based on service in this life. My citizenship is there. I am an alien here on this earth. I am a sojourner. But my permanent citizenship, I only have a green card right now on planet earth. My citizenship forever, it is in heaven. My name is written in heaven as a citizen in heaven. That's what Jesus said. My home is in heaven. Actually, my home is under construction right now. Right now I'm renting, but I've got a home. It's being built right now. I own it full out. There's no debt, by the way. There's no mortgage. It's being built by the master builder himself. That's Jesus Christ. That's what he said in John 14. I go to prepare a place for you. I go to make and construct a place for you. And he's literally talking about in heaven where you will eternally reside if you are a Christian and a believer. It's awesome. So my home is there. I mean, I can just go on and on. Fantastic. That is the reality of heaven. What is it like in heaven? And then uh, many times people and even Christians, and I've done this, a follow-up question is, what are we going to be doing in heaven? Man, eternity, that's a long time. That's actually not the best question because, you know, I said the Bible talks about heaven over 500 times and it's got 50 times referred to in Revelation and gives us the details of Revelation. The book of Revelation really doesn't even answer that question. What are we going to be doing in heaven for eternity? It doesn't answer that question. Because God has a different focus of more important questions, like who is going to be in heaven? God. And what is God going to be doing on our behalf in heaven? Those are the more important questions. And actually, this this text answers those questions. Not what are we going to be doing? And also, what is it like in heaven? That is also described in this text. Those are the more important questions we need to be asking about what heaven is like. So let's go ahead and do it. Out of these eight verses, I just came up with four principles for us to keep in mind to guide our thoughts. So let's look at the first one, and that's verses 1 and 2 of what is it like in heaven and what's going on there and what is heaven really about, God's perfect revelation about heaven. Verses 1 and 2, and that's uh, the capital of heaven, the capital city. That's the new Jerusalem, the capital of heaven. Heaven does have a cap. The future heaven, I should say, the future perfect eternal new heaven. Because in verse 1 of chapter 21, uh, John says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Well, what happened to the old heaven? And the, well, first of all, what were the old heaven and the old earth? Well, the old heaven and the old earth are the old heaven and earth that we're dealing with right now. This earth that we live on, which is cursed by God in Genesis 3 and is wearing out under the curse, falling apart, according to Romans chapter 8. But the old heaven and old earth that the new heaven and new earth displace is the heaven and earth that we deal with and contend with right now that was created by God in Genesis 1.1 which would include this earth and the immediate space and the stratosphere and interstellar space and all the planets. That's 
the universe, or that's, yeah, the universe, that's the heaven that God had created, and it is under a curse. It's going to be supplanted. Actually, it's going to explode, and God is going to burn it up out of judgment, annihilate it, incinerate it, eviscerate it, and then he's going to make a new heaven and a new earth, as he promised in Isaiah 65 and Isaiah 66, and that's exactly what he does. At the end of the great white throne judgment, uh, after that, then God reveals this new heaven and new earth. It's a, it's a physical place. For the first, her, uh, the first heaven and the first earth passed away. Boom, gone. The first earth and the first heaven passed away. If you got your Bible and you got Isaiah, I think it's Isaiah uh, 57. No, sorry, Isaiah 65, verse 17. Let's go there. Isaiah 65, verse 17. Because John gives more revelation and details about some comments that Isaiah made regarding the new heaven and the new earth. And Isaiah 65, 17 says this, For behold, John says the same thing, behold, a couple times in this text. And, and again, the modern translation, you are not going to believe this at a human level, but it is true. It is absolutely amazing. It is breathtaking. That's what John is saying. And we know that John feels that way as he's hearing this from this angel in the, the Revelation, because he's supposed to be writing all this down. And he's just so caught up and enraptured with this amazing, glorious prospect of the future as God is revealing it, that sometimes he puts his pen down and he just wants to, he's overwhelmed with joy. And the angel keeps, has to kind of tap him on the shoulder. John, keep writing. Write it down. Write it. This is true. That's what behold means. Uh, Isaiah 65, verse 17. For behold, God's talking, I create new heavens and a new earth. Replacing this one. Boy, if you're satisfied with this earth, you're in trouble. Scripture is clear. This world is passing away and everything about it is passing away. If you love this world, you don't love God. That's what First John says. The things of this world that are passing away. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life. The things that you can win and attain and pile up here on this earth should not be loved by the Christian. Why? Because they're passing away and God's going to get rid of them and supplant them with something else. He goes on, Isaiah 65, 17, For behold, I create a new heavens and new earth, and the former things will not be remembered. The former things, the things of this life, that are not worthy to be remembered. For the Christian, this is very exciting because that includes your sin. Every sin that ever happened from the time you were born until you died, if you're a believer, will not be remembered anymore. Totally forgotten, wiped out by the blood of Jesus. That is complete total forgiveness and the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, Savior of the world. Isn't that good news? That's why the gospel is called good news. Amen. That's why God is saying, man, the former things of the old life won't be remembered or come to mind. Hallelujah. Good stuff. So I saw a new heaven and new earth, John says, and for the first earth and the first heaven passed away. And then he's just this incidental, although it's not incidental because God says you need to know it. Oh, and by the way, there is no longer any sea. Well, that's kind of, that's interesting. What's up with that comment? Why do we need to know that, God? Well, because the new heaven and the new earth and even conceiving what it's going to be like is actually beyond our capability to understand. It is beyond, so it's like God is being gracious and accommodating to us and trying to give us some things that we can relate to and so that we can somewhat understand the nature of heaven and what it's going to be like. And so it just throws out there, oh, by the way, there's no more sea in heaven. That is, a, that's a good thing. See, the world is covered by 75% water. What does the sea do? It separates people. It divides people, literally. There's no division in heaven. There's, Perfect interdependence and unity among God's people and God himself. There's no room for a separating sea. 
So no more sea. What else about the sea? Well, it, it kills people. People drown there. We have a tsunami that just happened in a, a massive earthquake in Japan. If you saw it on the news, it was unbelievable devastation and lives that the water and the sea are taking mercilessly in its path. In heaven, there is no more sea. And everything that is a negative innuendo about sea and how it has affected humanity will be gone. No negativity, no sea, no need for sea in heaven. The sea isn't inherently evil, but the way it functions, uh, it's detrimental in many ways to humanity. So there's no more sea in heaven. A couple other things about uh, this new city. Uh, for, the, for the first heaven, first earth passed away, no more sea. And here, verse 2. And I saw, so John keeps looking, and he saw the holy city. So he's got this vision. And what is this holy city? Well, the holy city is the new Jerusalem. There was the old Jerusalem on earth that existed all throughout history that was tainted with sin, under the curse, destroyed many times, rebuilt once again. God will uh, build it up during the thousand-year millennium where Jesus Christ will reign literally on the first, uh, in the first new or old Jerusalem as king where it's his headquarters, but even that millennial glorious Jerusalem will be done away with by God. And then he's going to supplant it with the eternal Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem the Jerusalem that will last for all eternity, and it's literally a city. So John is looking, and out of heaven, it says the holy city, the new Jerusalem, is coming down out of heaven, coming down out of heaven, and it's going to land on the new earth, the new, perfected, eternal, sinless, glorious earth. And this new Jerusalem, this new, eternal, heavenly city that is coming down from heaven was made ready by God as a bride adorned for her husband. I believe God is adorning and preparing this eternal city called New Jerusalem even right now. I believe that that's what Jesus was referring to in John 14. I go to prepare a place for you. I believe that was in the, within the confines of the New Jerusalem, the eternal holy city. Being prepared. The terminology is very specific. It is being prepared by God Himself. The book of Hebrews says that in reference to the New Jerusalem, the heavenly city, that it is its builder and architect is God. He built it. He made it. He's creating it. And it will last for eternity. And it is the capital city of the future eternal heavens. The new Jerusalem is not heaven. It's not synonymous with heaven. It is the capital city of the new heaven. That's what scripture says. This is amazing. It's going to go into great detail to even describe what it looks like, which is awesome in the rest of uh, chapter 21 and 22. But here it is, this glorious city coming down, prepared by God, uh, made ready as a bride. That's how much care God took into it. That's how personal and intimate it was. He was preparing as though his own precious bride. He personalizes it by calling it a bride, even though it's a city, because the people who live in it are personal and they know God personally. They are intimate with him. So this city is comprised of all of God's beloved people, and that's why it is called a bride. This beautiful, precious City. Many times, I, the first thing that comes to my mind when you hear city in America is sin, right? Falling apart, compromise, theft, high rates, police, etc., and on and on. Not so in heaven and not in the new Jerusalem. That's why it's called a holy city, sinless city, perfect city, no crime, nothing. That's hard to imagine, isn't it? Because we've never had a city on earth that was without all of those things. This is the perfect, eternal, literal. By the way, this heaven is also a physical city. It's amazing. Hard to conceive. Uh, and, people, and when you think of the word city, you think of people, and that's exactly what, it, what it's about. When you have people living together, uh, that speaks of activity, production, communion, 
relationships, socialization, interdependence, cooperation. And that's what this beautiful heavenly city is going to be like with all of God's people and all the saints. And not just with each other, but also with God himself. We're going to see that in the next point. So that is this literal, eternal, physical city that will be the capital of the new heavens and the new earth that currently is up in heaven. And Jesus himself, along with God the Father and the Spirit, are fashioning it and preparing it. And the word used in verse 2, adorned, adorning it, cosmios, cosmos, cosmetics. What is cosmetics? Well, that's when girls put a whole bunch of makeup on their face to rearrange their face to make it look pretty. Because that's what cosmos means, to rearrange, to put order to disorder. You get up in the morning and look in the mirror, disorder, ugly, fix, cosmetics, cosmios, arrange, order, beautify. That's exactly what this word is. That's what God is doing to the heavenly city, preparing it, arranging it, beautifying it. And if you're a Christian, you get to live there someday for all eternity. It's awesome. The heavenly Jerusalem, by the way, and also scriptures clear that the throne of God will be there in that city. Which leads me to my next point, uh, which is verses 3 and 4. Let's go ahead and look at that. Point number 2. So we had the capital of uh, the new heaven, and that's the new Jerusalem. And now the essence of the new heaven. The, the essence, in other words, the most important thing that we should consider when thinking about what is it going to be like in heaven. Priority number one. And it certainly is not, well, what are we going to be doing? How boring. Sit on a cloud. How do you do that? You probably fall through. No. It's not about what are we going to be doing. The essence of heaven, the reason I said the essence is it's priority number one. Here's what we should be thinking about. And that's the presence of God. The presence of God. This is really... This is inconceivable. This is mind-boggling. The more you think about it and meditate on it. How can you... The presence of God, seeing God, being with God, fellowshipping with the eternal God of the universe, God the Father. How is that even possible? We know that God the Father, He is invisible. He is a spirit. He doesn't have a body. He is infinite. He's bigger than the universe. He's bigger than a throne. How in the world are we going to see that which is invisible and unapproachable and a raging fire of brilliant, majestic light? I don't know how it's possible, but that's what Scripture says. First John says the same thing. We don't know what God looks like now, but in the future we shall see Him as He is. Mind-boggling. But Scripture really doesn't go into detail of what He looks like because it's beyond, it defies human description and human language. But it's just the greatest, most awesome reality. That is the essence of heaven. Why do I want to go to heaven? To be with God. That's heaven. Hence, the essence of heaven is the presence of God. Look at verses 3 and 4. And I heard a loud voice from the throne. Loud. Over 20 times. Revelation is a loud book. Saying, behold. You're never going to believe this. This is awesome. The tabernacle of God. What is a tabernacle? A tabernacle is when somebody pitches a tent and they live there. They take up residence there. They reside there physically. So the tabernacle of God. This is metaphorical in terms of the fact that God doesn't have a tent. That's what tabernacle means. But it, the truth is literal. God will literally dwell, pitch His tent, be among His people in a physical manifestation somehow. That's amazing. I heard a loud voice. Behold, get this, in heaven, the eternal city, in the new Jerusalem, the tabernacle of God is among men. The tabernacle of God is among men. Did you know that five times in this verse, in five different ways, John says that God is going to be dwelling with His people? Five times. It is emphatic. He says it every way conceivable. 
Here's the greatest thing about heaven. God will literally dwell with His people in a way He never has in the history of the world. Because ever since Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve sinned, God has isolated Himself from humanity, from sinners. He's hidden Himself. He has veiled Himself, even from believers. A holy, holy, holy God cannot tolerate being in the immediate presence of sinful people, even believers. So God's literal presence has been veiled since Genesis 3. Here it is unveiled and revealed in its total fullness for the first time ever in the history of the universe and will go on perpetually through all eternity like that. God will be with His people. But there are times throughout history where God did reveal Himself in in a hidden way or in shadows with His people. Whereas it was His real presence, but in a limited way or in a shielded or veiled way. For example, God came down to His people with the tabernacle and the Israelites inside that tent. And inside that tent and then in the Holy of Holies inside that tent was another tent and in there was a, a manifestation of the presence of God. And only a few people were actually allowed to go there only once a year. And if you did, boom, instant death. God was shielding sinners from His immediate presence because they couldn't handle it. No man can look on God and live. That's what Scripture says. Then they built the temple, which was permanent, out of stone and gold. And inside there they had a holy of holies where God manifested a little bit of His presence for His people. But only, again, one person a year could actually go into that presence without dying. That was all throughout history for 4,000 years until Jesus came. And then John chapter 1, verse 14 says that about Jesus, the Word of God, in the beginning was the Word of God and... The Word was God. And the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Same idea, same word, same concept. That Almighty God, Creator of the universe, came down here in the body and the person of a humbled Jesus Christ. The eternal God of the universe took on a limited physical human body and the literal presence of God was among people on earth in the body of Jesus Christ. That's what it says. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And John, who wrote that book, said, And we beheld His glory. We saw Him. But even Jesus in His incarnation the first time was veiling the full manifestation of the all-glorious God of the universe. So in the future, so in the millennium, some of that unveiling is going to be pulled away because Jesus will then be in resurrected glory. But in the eternal state, it is a full and total eternal unveiling of the all-glorious being of the triune God, which is beyond conception. Hurt your brain even thinking about it. But it's awesome. It's a great truth. And this is the greatest encouragement to the Christian. This is what we look forward to. Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and He will dwell among them. Isn't that beautiful? I just think about Genesis 3, and it says where God was walking in the garden with Adam and Eve, that that intimate fellowship that they had. God doesn't have legs, but it's picturesque of what He was doing. It's speaking of that immediacy, an intimate relationship that God had with Adam and Eve just prior to them getting kicked out of the Garden of Eden. That's how it's going to be in heaven, this immediate access. I've never seen God the Father. I've never seen the Holy Spirit. I've never seen Jesus, yet I believe in Him, and someday I will see Him in His fullness. The great hope of a Christian. So he's going to dwell among his people and they shall be his people. He will own us. That's Psalm 23, verse 1, isn't it? The Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. He's going to care for us. He's going to feed us, lead us, protect us, everything about it. He owns us. Just a beautiful relationship. He's going to be with his people. He's going to care for his people. He will dwell among them. They shall be his people and God himself will be among them. It is God himself will be among them. God with us. Isaiah 7.14, 700 years before Christ was born. 
Isaiah was given a prophecy about the coming Messiah. And the one way to identify the Messiah is that the Messiah will be conceived by a virgin. That is humanly impossible. That is a miracle. The virgin birth. Only Jesus Christ was born of a virgin in the history of the world. The Messiah bypassing the curse of sin. And Isaiah went on to say in Isaiah 7.14, the Messiah will be born of a virgin and his name shall be called Emmanuel. And then Matthew picks up on that at the birth of Christ in Matthew chapter 1 when he says that Jesus will be called Jesus. He will be the Lord, but he will also be called Emmanuel, which means God with us, God among his people, God literally dwelling with his people. You know what's interesting? According to Scripture, in the 33 years that Jesus lived on earth, not one person ever called him Emmanuel. I've always been intrigued by that. Wow, okay, you promised God that Jesus who was born as the Messiah would be called Emmanuel, yet... For 33 years, he was never called Emmanuel. Well, why is that? Well, because it's a prophecy yet to be fulfilled. God with us. It'll be fulfilled in the millennium when literally Jesus in his glory is on earth with his people. He will dwell with them. And then again, the triune God of the universe and the eternal city will fulfill this prophecy as well. Well, God will be with his people. He will dwell among us. Awesome. Awesome reality. So let's keep going there. Uh, verse Four. So that's the greatest thing about heaven is the essence of what God is like and the fact that he's going to be with his people. Another great thing is what does God do? He's not just with us because people can be with you and hanging out with you and actually not like you, right? People can be with you, hanging out with you, rubbing shoulders with you, and maybe they like you, but they don't do anything for you. Maybe they just ignore you or maybe they just didn't, don't know what they should be doing for you. So just because somebody has got close proximity to you, doesn't guarantee any benefit whatsoever, but that's not true of God in heaven. He's going to dwell among his people, be with his people, and look what he's going to do. This is just amazing. Verse 4, look at it. And God, the eternal God of the universe, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So what this is saying is that in heaven, the eternal state, uh, believers won't have any more tears. Tears is a negative connotation. Tears are bad. That This is not good tears. This is bad tears. Tears is the result from pain and mourning and crying and sorrow and death and tragedy and trial, the trials of life, the curse of life, the curse of sin in our lives and the distress and everything else that comes with it manifest through the tears. And God says there, there won't be any of that in heaven. It's just pure bliss. All tears are gone. He will wipe away every tear. It's amazing. Just that verse. This is, in my opinion, the more I studied it, I was thinking, man, this is one of the greatest verses in the Bible in terms of the intimacy of how God relates to his people. Well, why do I say that? Well, he, he will wipe just the personal component there. How many people are going to be in heaven? I, I would imagine millions and millions. And then you've got all these angels distracting us all over the place, countless angels. And then you've got millions of people throughout world history. How could God or Jesus in heaven give me any personal attention whatsoever? How is that even possible? Well, God can do it. He's a miraculous, infinite being. And he is going to give us that personal care. He himself, God, not one of the angels. Hey, Gabriel, yeah, McManus is crying over there. Go uh, wipe, the, yeah, here's a tissue. About 10 miles down the road. He's standing in line. He's been there for 47 years. No. God himself, he will wipe away every tear. So God's going to be personal in heaven. Uh, it's, and it's not just personal, but it's personal care. The tear. He cares about our sorrows, doesn't he? How often in your life do you think nobody cares? Nobody knows, nobody understands. Even if you're married, even if you're close, you've got a close friend. There are times where you think they would not understand or they can't comfort me and this problem. They can't solve this problem. It's not true of God. He's going to be able to do that. The care he's going to provide. And just the 
the attention to detail is amazing because it's not all of their tears. It's every tear. It's singular in the text. Every tear. He cares about every little detail about you and God will attend to every little detail about you in heaven. He even cares right now about every detail, doesn't he? That's an amazing picture of the intimacy between the transcendent God of the universe and us as fallen finite sinners. So God will know you. He will care about you in heaven. Blessed truth. That goes on, verse 4, and He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will no longer be. And so all these things that are listed here are the result of the curse and actually byproducts of sin. Sin gave birth to every one of these. Uh, the first and the greatest enemy of sin is death, and that's what it says. They're in heaven, in the new heaven, with God in His immediate presence. There's, there will no longer be any death. That is our greatest enemy. That is what we fear most. Death. Paul calls it the greatest enemy and a tool of Satan. There will be no death in heaven. Once you get to heaven, you can never die again. That is awesome. No more death. Well, why do people die? Why are there earthquakes? Why do people die in earthquakes? Just had this massive earthquake in Japan. Why do people... Well, ultimately, bottom line, the answer, this is not a platitude or simplistic. It's what the Bible says. Every evil, wicked, cursed thing that happens on earth, including death, is a result of sin. The wages of sin is death. That is the baseline foundational answer. God is going to eradicate that as even a possibility in heaven. There won't be any more death because God will eradicate all sin. So there won't be any more death. Not only that, there will be uh, these things that are bad that happen to us while we're living on earth. There will be no longer any mourning or crying. Those actually go together. Mourning is kind of the internal distress, the internal depression, the internal heartbreak and heartache. That's the internal component And then it is manifest externally by the next word, and that is crying. So if you suffer and battle depression, you won't have that problem in heaven if you're a believer. Or have any distress or anything negative. Did you have anything distressing that made you want to cry this week? That ain't going to happen in heaven. That's just a joyous thing to be looking forward to. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. That pain there, that refers to physical pain. Physical pain and suffering, no matter what kind of physical pain and suffering. There won't be any physical pain in heaven. I don't even know that's possible because we're going to have physical bodies. How can there be no physical pain in heaven if we've got physical bodies? I don't know. God said that's the way it's going to be. Well, how is this possible? He says, well, the first things have passed away. In other words, uh, this is going to be a whole new way of life. You, you can't even conceive of it. And John is just struggling. As a matter of fact, heaven has to be described in negative terms because there's no positive terms to explain it that we could even relate to because we've never experienced it before. So he's trying to relate to things that in this life we do go through and from a negative point of view to say that, yeah, this is bad and miserable, but it's a a reality every day in your life. Think of just the opposite and if you were alleviated of all of that, then that is heaven. That's how he describes it. It's awesome. What a great treasure. You know, well, why is this even possible? This is way beyond anything I deserve as a sinner, isn't it? Why me, God? Why are you going to allow me to live eternally with you in your immediate presence as an all-glorious, holy, holy, infinite, awesome God and live in a condition where I will never have pain, mourning, crying, tears, distress, negativity, the byproducts of sin, death? Why? Well, the answer is Jesus. That's the typical Sunday school answer. It's always a good one, isn't it? Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Because of who Jesus was, because of His work on the cross, His death and resurrection, His perfect life, His sinless life, His willing substitutionary death on the cross where He absorbed the wrath of Almighty God, 
buried, rose again from the dead, conquered death, conquered sin, conquered Satan, ascended on high as King of kings and Lord of lords, and died as a substitute for believing sinners so that they would escape all of this wrath to come and the wrath and the misery they've experienced even in this life. So if you have your Bible and you turn to Isaiah 53, this is not coincidental that these terms are used in Revelation 21, 3 and 4. All these negative things. Death, mourning and crying, suffering, pain. Did you know that those are the same words that are used in Isaiah 53? Isaiah 53 is a prophecy 700 years before Jesus came and died of what his death would accomplish on behalf of believers. It's amazing. It is graphic. The substitutionary death of Jesus Christ, our blessed Lord. Verse 3. On the cross, Jesus was despised and forsaken of men. He was a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief. He was acquainted with depression. He was acquainted with distress, anxiety, all that stuff. There's nothing that he can't relate to in terms of our weakness. He was a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face. He was isolated. He was despised. He was rejected. He was outcast. He was a loner. People considered him a loser. So he can identify with us. Verse 4. That's why he died for us as our substitute. Surely our, Here it is. Surely our griefs he himself bore. Our sorrows he carried. Our griefs and our sorrows. Everything that is bad that we have to contend with in life, Jesus died for. Because all of it is a byproduct of sin. Our sorrow, our grief, our depression, even physical diseases ultimately, according to Scripture, result from sin. Sin gave birth to it all. And it all culminates in physical death and eternal death. Jesus died for sin. Yet we ourselves esteemed Him stricken. That's physical pain right there. That's physical pain and also a supernatural pain we can't even understand that God the Father punished Jesus with when He was on the cross. Jesus was stricken. He was beaten. He was smitten of God the Father. He was afflicted. See, that word pain is in Revelation 21. No more pain. Why? Because Jesus took our pain and suffering because of sin. Verse 5, but He was pierced through. There it is. Executed. Killed. For our sin. That's the main truth right there. He was crushed for our iniquities. He died for sin. The chastening. That's the wrath of God. The chastening for our well-being. The wrath of God was taken upon Him so that we could have well-being with God, so we could know God and be forgiven by God. And by Jesus' scourging, by His crucifixion, by His substitutionary death, we are healed. We are forgiven by God. Totally forgiven. All of our sins and all the byproducts that come with sin, including physical suffering, death, and everything else associated with it. Wow. So the possibility of Revelation 21, 3 and 4 is fulfilled and even made possible by the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Man, that's awesome. That's good news. That is the gospel. It's all about Jesus. By the way, that is a perfect description of hell. All these things that we're not going to experience that people who reject Jesus Christ and go to hell, they will experience this. They will experience eternal, physical, literal death. They will experience mourning and crying because that's how Jesus defined hell. Weeping and gnashing of teeth, suffering, pain, that's hell. Not making it up, it's in the text in verse 8. That's the contrast. That's what Jesus saves us from. It's awesome. So let's go on to the next point, number three. 
who are the occupants of heaven? Who gets to get into heaven? This, this glorious reality that's yet to come. And to also to escape the tragedy of destruction and wrath that is yet to come called the lake of fire. How do you get into heaven? Well, the Bible's clear about it. The truth is simple. Who are the occupants of heaven? Well, they're believing overcomers. And the key word there is believing. Those who believe. Those who believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ get to go to heaven. And actually get to experience parts and realities of heaven right now on this earth and in this life once you believe the good news of the gospel. Who gets to go to heaven? Those who believe in Jesus Christ and his gospel. Who doesn't get to go to heaven? Who goes to hell? Who goes to the lake of fire? Those who reject. Those who do not believe Jesus and his gospel. Scripture is clear. Verse 5, And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new, this glorious reality of heaven. And he said, Write, for the words are faithful and true. Go ahead, John. Keep writing. I know it's an awesome truth. These words are faithful and true. You know, again, he said that for the second time. He said that in Revelation 19.9. An angel did. said, John, these things are true. They're reliable. You can count on it. This is not fiction. This is not fantasy. This is not some delusion of a psycho-religious Christian fanatic. This is really going to happen. Even though it's beyond comprehension, it is going to happen. You can count on it because God is as true as His Word. These words are faithful and true. said the same thing in Revelation 19.9, talking about uh, the marriage supper of the Lamb. These words are the true words of God. This is similar to the words used in Genesis chapter 1, repeated four or five times when God is talking about how things were created when we weren't there and we didn't see it and we don't know. Therefore, the only way we can know about it is believe what God said about it and not deny it and undermine it and explain it away. When God said how He created the world in six days, and every uh, after about every day, He says, and it was so, and it was so. That means it really happened this way. The same is true about creation. It will also be true about heaven. And it will be so. These words are true. Verse 6, Then He said to me, it is done. It's done. This, is, this plan is done. It is set in the mind of the eternal God. This was determined long ago by the eternal God. It's going to happen. Nothing's going to deviate from the plan. God is in charge. He's totally sovereign. He holds the universe in the palm of His hand. God says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. That's His biography. The first letter and the last letter of the Greek alphabet, beginning to end. In other words, there's a sequence. History is going somewhere. It started with Alpha. It's going to end in Omega. And God is the one who invented the alphabet, and we're definitely going to get there. It's not going to be undermined by anything, by Satan, by sin, by chance, nothing. I am in charge, the sovereign God. He's the Alpha and the Omega. This is God the Father talking. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. Later on, Jesus calls Himself the Alpha and the Omega. So Jesus is just as much God as the Father is. The beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts. So these are the ones that get to go to this glorious future called eternal heaven. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. This is an invitation to the gospel to believe it. I will give the water of life. That's eternal life. I will give eternal life. Forgiveness of sin. That's what the water of life is. That's how Jesus used it in John chapter 7. The water of life. Forgiveness of sin. By virtue of believing in the gospel about Jesus Christ. That he was God in a body. Lived a perfect life. Died on the cross willingly, intentionally for sinners. And was punished by God the Father. Absorbing the eternal wrath of Almighty God. On himself. As our substitute so that we could be totally forgiven. If we believe that Jesus is our Lord and Savior. And we confess our sins to Him. And then He rose again and ascended on high. That's the gospel. That's how you get saved. That's how you become an overcomer. That's how you receive the water of life. And it is by faith. Believing overcomers. It is by faith. Just receive the truth. Believe the truth. You can't earn it. You can't do anything 
to achieve it in terms of human works to impress God. But that's indicative of all false religions of the world. Trying to build yourself up by the work of your own works and pull yourself up by your own bootstrap. That is not Christianity. That's not truth. That's damning false religion, actually. I give. That's what God says here. I will give. I'm the one in charge. I give eternal life. You don't earn it. Jesus earned it by dying and rising. I give it as the Father and the dispenser of eternal life. I give it. I give eternal life without cost. You can't earn it. You can't buy it. It doesn't matter who you are. And it also needs to be believed on individually. It doesn't matter who your parents are, what church you go to. It has to be you, one person at a time. The entrance to heaven is a turnstile, they say. One at a time. By faith in the gospel. Great truth. Verse 7, he says, He who overcomes. So this is the last of the promises to the overcomers in the book of Revelation. By way of reminder, Revelation 2 and 3, God gave seven promises to overcomers, seven promises to Christians in this life. And all seven are future. You don't receive them in this life. You receive them in the future, in heaven, in the next life. And here's the eighth and last one that overcomers will receive. And 1 John 5, 5 says that an overcomer is one who believes in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. The overcomer promises. So here's another promise to an overcomer to every Christian. Here's your inheritance. Here's what you're going to get when you die. At some point, God will give it to you. He who overcomes will inherit these things. Well, what is it? And I will be his God and he will be my son. He will be my son. I will be. It hasn't happened yet uh, before you're a Christian. If you're born into this world, you're born separated from God. If you're born into this world at birth, you are not related to God spiritually. He is not your father. You are the father of the devil. That's what the Bible says. And that's why Jesus said, as a result, you must be born again. You must be born from above. You must be spiritually reborn. And believe in Christ and His gospel. And when you believe in the gospel, you are spiritually reborn. And then you are adopted into God's family for the first time and you become a Christian. And that adoption is made legal by the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. The, the adoption is legal. It's a supernatural, spiritual transaction. It is a literal transaction. God the Father, creator of the universe, holy, holy, holy God, adopting you as a forgiven sinner into His eternal heavenly family. Adoption. And all the legal work was accomplished totally, perfectly, and forever with the death and resurrection and ministry of Jesus Christ. So if you're a believer, you are you have legally been adopted by Jesus Christ and God the Father. The one thing that hasn't happened yet is the practical necessity after you apply for an adoption, go through the process, it's legalized, and you've got the paper in hand, then you've got to go pick up the baby, right? So one of my dearest friends right now adopted a baby. All legal, spent two years, actually about four years, uh, got all the paperwork, it's all been legal, that baby is theirs, and now they've got to travel across half, halfway around the world to go get that baby and make it a physical reality. All the legality of it is done, and that's what's happening here. Legally, if you're a Christian, you've been adopted by God. It is legal, but you are not with Him yet. So in the future, in the new heaven, uh, the new Jerusalem, that's where it's going to be finalized when you are literally in the immediate presence of God, your Father, and you will be with Him eternally and never to be separated. That is biblical adoption. It's awesome. Great reality. So those are the occupants, uh, believing overcomers. By the way, just by way of reminder on those, over, those promises to the overcomer, other promises, remember we're going to eat from the tree of life. That's having eternal satisfaction. We won't be hurt by the second death and we'll have no pain. We'll have uh, a white stone, which allows us to get into heaven. We'll get a new name, which speaks of intimate personal identity with God. 
a new identity that is a perfect identity, will be given rule and authority. We will be given white garments, which means we're invited to the wedding actually as the bride, and also we are we will be sinless in our white garments. Get this, I love this one. We will be when we get to heaven, we will be confessed or announced by Jesus to the Father. Isn't that cool? And now in this corner. That's what I love. When I was in high school playing basketball on the varsity team, the most exciting thing for me, and this is how crass and self-centered I was, was the fact that if you were a starter on the team, before the game they announced your name and you got to run out to the center of the court and look at everybody and talk about pride. But anyway, I loved it. Just, and it was on a loud microphone and this guy, one of our teachers, just had this really cool bellowing announcing voice. Like, yeah, and now Cliff McManus. Anyway, so that was very sinful. But this is a sinless way. Jesus himself is going to announce you into heaven to the Father in the future. You have a place. Your name is written there. Jesus wrote it in blood. You'll also be a pillar, meaning you will never be removed from God's presence. And then finally, you're going to get to sit on the very throne of Jesus. Divine privilege. That's awesome. Okay, let's go on to the last point, and that's verse 8, after the occupants of heaven. And that is, well, what is the alternative of heaven? And we alluded to that. And John says the alternative to going to heaven is uh, going to eternal hell, which we've talked about a few times because the lake of fire keeps coming up. It came up in... Actually, hell came up in chapter 14, it came up in 16, it came up in 18, the wrath of God, and then specifically in 19 and 20, and again in 21. God doesn't want us to forget this horrible reality called the second death, called hell, and as it comes a result of rejecting Jesus Christ and His gospel. And who's going to go there? Well, the key is the beginning of verse 8. The cowardly and unbelieving. Those words go together. They complement one another. It's not just cowardly in a generic sense. We're all cowards, Right? to one degree or another, for whatever circumstance. It is talking about a specific kind of cowardice. It is the cowardice of being unwilling to continue believing in Jesus Christ and His gospel out of fear or out of fear of consequence from the world and the fear of man. That's the cowardice it's talking about. Jesus gave parables on that kind of cowardice that undermines true faith and belief. So this is right at the heart of belief in the gospel, being a coward for Jesus, a coward for truth. And then he gets explicit. The cowardly and unbelieving are going to hell. That's what he says. Those who don't have faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ go to hell. And because they're unbelieving and cowardly and reject the gospel, they won't be forgiven of any of their sin. So in the eyes of God, their status is what it was on earth. Totally unforgiven and all God sees on that person is just a horrible, despicable, unforgiven sinner in every conceivable category. And he lists some of the categories. Unforgiven people who are cowardly and unbelieving and reject the gospel, they are abominable in God's eyes. Abominable. They are murderers. They are immoral. Porneia. All kinds of sexual immorality. Unforgiven. They are sorcerers. They are idolaters. They are all liars. Well, what about us as believers here on earth? We still struggle with sin, don't we? We do. I do. I have sin living in me. I have to battle sin every day. I have to battle the lusts of my soul, according to the book of Peter. Well, the difference between me and somebody who's going to hell is that I've been forgiven. And I've been forgiven because I believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the only difference. I'm not more worthy. I didn't work harder to get forgiven. It simply comes down to faith and belief in the gospel of Jesus Christ, the sacrifice that God has provided, that free living water. That is the only thing that separates me from this miserable lot of people who face eternal hell. They will be consigned there because it goes on all liars. This, their part will be in the lake of fire uh, that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second 
death. Man, what a motivation for us as Christians. God wants us to remember that so that we can continue to pray for the lost, witness to the lost, be a light to the lost, grieve for the lost, that all might repent and be saved. That should motivate the Christian. I want to close with this brief story about the reality of thinking about heaven, having confidence in the reality of heaven because it will be your rock in this life if you're a Christian at some point because we're all going to have to face and confront death. And this week I was with my father-in-law and he has a really good friend, actually a couple, believing couple, and they're in their 90s. And uh, the brother, his name was Doug, and he's, I don't know, he's 92, been in my father-in-law's Bible study for the last 10 years, every Monday at a restaurant. 10, 15 guys have been to the Bible study many times. So I, I knew Doug. So on Monday, uh, he was getting close to death and he was in his home and he was in a bed and he was hardly conscious. And so my father-in-law told me that, that yeah, Doug Moore is going to probably pass pretty soon. Um, I said, wow. So then uh, I think it was that evening. I said, so how's his wife doing? She's 90 and he's 92. And they've been walking with Jesus for, I don't know, 70 years or I don't know how long. And uh, he told me, well, she's... She's, uh, she's doing really well and she's actually released him in her own heart. She has released him confidently knowing that as soon as he breathes his last in this life, poof, he is catapult instantaneously into the presence of God in heaven in bliss. And that was her confidence before he died. So that was Monday. And then on Wednesday he passed and I was with my in-law, again, my father-in-law, and he told me, yeah, Doug, Doug went to be with Jesus. That's how he said it. And Doug apparently told my father-in-law before he left and died that don't be crying for me. I'm going to be crying for you guys. You miserable lot down on earth. Um, so when he died, then my father-in-law talked to his wife. Well, how's she doing? She is doing great. She's, she's actually somewhat relieved. He's not in pain anymore. And she knows where he is. And that was good to hear for me this week. Then I told him, hey, I'm studying this very thing about Revelation 21. And they got all excited. And God's word is sufficient and Applies to every area of our life. Thank, let's go ahead and thank the Lord for that great truth and the rock of His truth. Father, we do thank You for our time together to worship You. And God, what a great theme and reality that we can reflect upon from Your from Your Scripture and with the help of the Holy Spirit who opens this revelation up to us so we can understand it. Thank You for the reality of heaven. We can count on it. It is sure. Thank You for the divine adoption that has already been accomplished through Jesus' work for those of us who believe. Thank you that you've told us and made it clear we don't have to go to hell. We won't have any of our sins remembered in heaven. There is no condemnation for those who believe. And thank you for your promise to have an incredibly intimate relationship with us in a personal way when we get to heaven. God, may you use that in our own hearts to motivate us as thankful, active, obedient Christians every day of our life in service to you. We give you the glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.